Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Live in-person performance ended with the pandemic. And today we'll consider how the local indie music scene is trying to come back. Along with so many others in the industry, Venue bookers and talent buyers have been hard hit. Later this hour, we'll hear from Damon Hare, the main talent buyer for the indie music venue, The Earl. He also books shows at Terminal West, Variety Playhouse, and Aisle 5 in Atlanta. First... Oh, superfly! When we think of flies... Irritating and annoying may be the words that immediately come to mind. Not so for the biologist Jonathan Balcom. He invites us to put away our prejudices against flies and regard them non-judgmentally. Balcom's new book is Superfly. The Unexpected Lives of the World's Most Successful Insects. The author joins us now via Zoom. Jonathan Balkum, welcome to City Lights. It's great to be here, Lois. I love the title and confess that Curtis Mayfield's song began playing in my head when I learned about your book. Great choice. Thank you. Your book, What a Fish Knows drew praise from no less than the Dalai Lama. He appreciates your regard for animals as sentient beings who experience joy and pain. Would you tell us about your specialty as a researcher? Sure. My specialty is ethology, which is a branch of biology that focuses on animal behavior. Uh, Ethologists especially like to observe and study animals, preferably in their natural setting where the behavior that you can see tends to be more authentic. Whenever we take them into captivity, it can uh, somewhat skew the reality of their behavior. Um, so, But ethology is a, is a relatively new field of biology and a 20th century field. It's really exciting to me. I really enjoy watching animals. I never get tired of it. And the more I l- learn, the more we learn paradoxically, the more questions there are to ask. Hmm. Um, I read that 
your research focuses on studying the consciousness of other creatures. Consciousness is a is a really fascinating phenomenon. It's something we take for granted, but uh, consciousness has probably evolved at least twice and perhaps several times through evolutionary history. Vertebrate animals are all conscious, and now we have good evidence that octopuses and squids and their relatives are conscious, and that evolved separately. And uh, there's also some evidence that insects as well, and probably some other groups of animals are consciously aware. Just another word I want to mention, Lois, is the word sentience, which is the capacity to feel. And that's something that kind of goes hand in hand with being conscious. So things like being awake, having emotions, having feelings, feeling pain, feeling pleasure, uh, having cognition, the ability to think, to reason. Uh, flies have an attention span, for instance. So certainly uh, there's indications that these tiny animals have experiences. Hmm then what it says about those who study these aspects of flies also apply. The expression, he wouldn't hurt a fly, comes to mind. In fact, it came to mind as I was reading this book. You mentioned that as a young boy playing with others who enjoyed mashing insects, stomping on them, you identified much more with the insects than the kids who are engaging in that behavior. Yes, harming animals uh, never appealed to me. Um, it's interesting that, uh, that I think a lot of the time children learn this from their parents. And so I think as uh, grown-ups, we all have a responsibility to send a more protective message. You know, the reality is that uh, humankind has spent billions of dollars trying to kill flies over the last 30 years and mere pennies trying to protect them. And we're now entering an era where insect numbers have decreased by about half in the last 50 years, according to several study estimates. And that's scary because insects are extremely useful to us. You know, I don't feel like we have to gauge an animal's value in terms of its importance to humans. But if you do gauge them that way, well, consider that they are vital pollinators of plants. You know, insects are the, the most important pollinators by far. They pollinate 90% of flowering plants to the tune of a value of over half a trillion dollars a year. Uh, flies are great waste disposers. They clean up messes. You know, the, the world would be a lot more pestilential place to live in. And it would probably smell a lot fouler as well if we didn't have flies. And flies are also critical parts of food chains in, in the ecosystem. So we, we you, you don't necessarily have to like flies individually. I understand when a mosquito bites us, so, you know, we want to defend ourselves. But we really need flies. We need to have them and we wouldn't survive without them. Yeah. Early in the book, you make the point that if one were to survey humankind of animals we most dislike, flies would make many top 10 lists. And you've just enumerated on some reasons that it's important for us to reconsider that. Why was it most important for you to write this book? I care about animals. I want them to flourish on this planet. And uh, flies are a glittering extravaganza of diversity. Uh, there's 160,000 
described species, and that's just the described ones. Uh, entomologists estimate that there's probably five times that many that are undescribed. There's a huge diversity, phantom midges, picture-winged flies, crane flies, bot flies, uh, big-headed flies, small-headed flies, long-leaded flies, cactus flies, the list goes on. There's over a hundred families, and most of them are obscure. And if you look at one under a microscope, as I've done, uh, they are exquisite in their, in their complexity, their beauty. Um, just a, the mere fruit fly, that little tiny fly that we often feel is a pesky member of our kitchen, you know, <laughs> fl- buzzing around the fruit bowl. And we wonder where they come from. I, I, I admire their resourcefulness that they can end up in our kitchens. But if you look at one under a, a dissecting microscope so you can see it up close, the, the legs, the symmetry, the little tiny spots on the wings, uh, the eyes, the mouth parts, just magnificent you know, creations, if you want to think of it that way. Jonathan, are you familiar with Levon Biss? No, I'm not familiar with that name. Well, he's a renowned photographer from the UK. And recently in Atlanta, there was an exhibition of his photographs where he enlarges their images to, I don't know how many thousands of times, and really has come to view them as the most beautiful creatures. I thought your paths might have crossed. Unfortunately not, but I've made a note of the name. And uh, in the course of researching my book, I've seen quite a lot of photos of flies. Uh, I have a beautiful big uh, book that has over 2,000 photos uh, by a, a biologist here in Canada. And uh, it's just such fun to go through the, that book. Uh, I've seen a photo micrograph of the proboscis of a, an ordinary house fly. You know, this is the mouth part. It's a wonderful tool that this fly has when they land on your skin. They're actually tasting through their feet, but they also put down this spongy mouth part uh, on a stem. And uh, under an electron micrograph, the complexity is just awe-inspiring. Uh, and this organ functions both as a, it's sort of like a squeeze, squeegee mop. So it can, it can express liquid to then lap up food. Um, and of course, it has to act as a, as a sort of a vacuum cleaner as well. So it's <laughs> remarkable, uh, the, the functional complexity, but also the visual complexity of these structures. You point out that insects are a marvel of miniaturization. And they share eight of the 10 body systems we have. In listening to you describe the beauty of these flies a moment ago, I'm curious about how you observe them in research. Well, in the course of researching this book, I, I did a lot of field work visiting biologists in their labs and uh, spending time in the field. I'm, I'm a nature lover, so I, I love to be out hiking and I go hiking every week. And uh, part of my, one of my projects was to allow certain flies to bite me who I had not permitted to do that if I could help it, such as a horse fly, mm-hmm. which is quite a big fly with pretty impressive mouth sawing mouth parts. And uh, I, I allowed a horse fly to bite me so I could experience the whole thing from start to finish. And just watching them do that was fascinating and, and feeling the sensations that I got from that. Also a stable fly. They're smaller than horse flies, but boy, do their bite, does their bite hurt. Curiously, when I was prepared and steeled myself for, for this experience, it didn't hurt nearly as much. And I got a couple of nice photos of a before and after and how bloated that belly gets when they fill up with blood. Oh, well, how do you study the 
brains of creatures so small. And I guess I wondered, do you observe dead flies under the microscope? You know, studying the minds of flies is is actually quite a growing field. I mean, insect brains are differentiated. They have structures called mushroom bodies, and they have a central complex. They have a protocerebrum. Uh, st- studies of various different insects show show signs of cognition and awareness. Uh, wasps, for instance, recognize the, each other in the colony by their faces. And if you mess up the faces with digital manipulations, the wasps don't recognize them and don't allow the other ones to enter. <laughs> Uh, ants recognize, appear to recognize themselves in a mirror. There are many examples of tool use in wasps and bugs. And of course, the honeybees are famous for their waggle dance. But to your question about how do you study the mind of a fly, I'll give you one example. These I mentioned attention span a little earlier. Uh, what these scientists in Australia will do, for instance, will they will tether a, a fruit fly. Uh, so the fly is flying in a drum and the drum rotates and they can, they can uh, unfortunately for the fly, there's electrodes. So the, the, the scientists are monitoring um, brain activity and then they rotate the drum. And if there's an X that comes around each time, the, the, there's a burst of activity in the fly's brain when it regards this X. But interestingly, if the X keeps coming around monotonously, it becomes boring for the fly. And the, there's a, the burst of activity in the brain becomes less and less each time. But then if you introduced a circle instead of an X all of a sudden, then there's a, a renewed big burst because it's a new stimulus. So that kind of um, b- habituation and getting used to and getting tired and loss of attention is, is, a, is, a, is a hallmark of, of having an, a conscious awareness. So these studies, uh, that's just one example of a way of probing into the inner mind and the inner cognition of a fly. That sounds like a tic-tac-toe game. <laughs> With Texas and O's. In Australia, is that the scientist who goes by the fly guy? Uh, actually not. That's somebody else. I emailed this uh, scientist who does the attention span studies recently and... Uh, um, he, they, they're probably colleagues. The the fly guy, Bry the fly guy, I saw his <laughs> TED talk and he talked about, uh, he, he mentioned all sorts of things about flies. But uh, one note that I recall from him saying is that if you, if you like chocolate, we can be grateful to flies because the only known pollinator of the co- cocoa plant which produces chocolate is a tiny little midge, uh, a midge being a fly. Yeah, well, okay, that I was saving. I'm glad you got to it because, (laughs) no, that's okay, Jonathan. That's where my tolerance began to grow in um, all that you've written about these creatures. Um, When you mentioned the scientists observing the fly tethered, Is that something you would not do because it sounds like a tether would be, uh, if not painful, definitely restraining? Yeah, uh, you know, it raises the question, can a fly feel frustration? I I can tell you that rejected male flies are more likely to consume alcohol. Uh, This is, is again, fruit flies. It sounds kind of human of them, and... uh, but fruit flies go for fruit, and of course, fruit rots and ferments, and it does produce alcohol. And flies use 
use alcohol as a tool. Um, not only do rejected males turn to alcohol sometimes, uh, which may not be in their favor, um, but female flies, if they if they're if they're at risk of being parasitized by wasps or they've been parasitized, they are likely to consume more alcohol because the alcohol has a toxic effect on the parasite and it can help to protect them. It's an example of self-medication in an insect. It is fascinating. Would you sh share some of the celebrity names of flies given them by entomologists? Flies have some fascinating names. Um, there's the Beyonce fly, which actually was coined by Bry the Fly Guy in Australia, <laughs> who we just mentioned. And uh, yes, he named this fly Printhina Beyoncé. Um, the fly is gorgeous and has a bright yellow abdomen. There's, uh, I, I don't know if it's a fly, it may be a beetle that has Kate, Kate Winslet's name in it, Kate Winslet eye. There's even a, even a Donald Trump eye. Yeah, I uh, was fascinated by that one in particular. Doesn't he have like a yellow comb over? That? I know there's some yellow and orange in there, I, I believe so, yes. And, and, and I don't remember if it has a stern facial expression, but that would be <laughs> fitting. Uh, you know, there's other flies that have, scientists do have a lot of fun naming, naming animals. And with flies, if you study flies, you're very... If you go in the field, especially in the tropics, you're almost guaranteed to find new undescribed species every time you put out a net. So, you know, for instance, there, there's bee, a couple of bee fly species are named for the sounds they make, Apolysis humbug and Apolysis zizixensis. Mm. Uh, there's, there's a genus of crane flies with very long mouth parts called Elephantomia. And then there's a couple of blowflies. These are ones that are attracted to and help to clean up rotting bodies and, and other waste products. And their names are Califora vomitoria and Califora morticia, which I think are lovely creative names. Oh, yes, Charles Adams would approve. We'll be back with more of our conversation with biologist Jonathan Balcom, the author of Superfly, in just a moment. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free. And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes, here with biologist Jonathan Balcom. His new book is Superfly, The Unexpected Lives of the World's Most Successful Insects. There are many examples of humor in this book. Would you share the windshield joke Yes. Uh, what is the last thing to go through a fly's mind when it hits a windshield? The answer is its butt. <laughs> a very uh, irreverent joke, but uh, 
I, I like it because it does imply that a fly has a mind. Yeah, and I admire the humor you display in the book. A subchapter heading is Frequent Flyers. Yeah, flies are not named flies for nothing. They're superb aerialists. I guess that uh, the majority of animals airborne in the world at any one time uh, are probably flies. Uh, they are superb flyers. They have only two wings. All, almost all, pretty much all other flying insects have four wings. The, the, the rear wing of the fly, they had them ancestrally, but it's been modified into a, a baton twirling type shaped drumstick with a knob on the end, uh, which is called a halter, and it provides balance and stability during flight. But, you know, just the, the, the humble fruit fly, the fact that they can land on a surface on, on the ceiling and run along. Um, there are flies whose wings beat at over a thousand times per second. Uh, flies use their wings to court and to attract mates. Uh, males will fan a female. They will create air patterns. There's even a fly. Uh, this blew my mind when I learned it. I wasn't aware of it when I began researching this book. There's a fly whose wings are asymmetrical. Hmm. So the, the males have one wing a little bit larger than the other. And, you know, there's any number of theories to, to try and explain why that is. None of them may be correct. Uh, but the flies use the wings to sing songs or they make they make these high-pitched sounds, which, which are probably a fly's equivalent of a song. Hmm. And uh, so it could be that it has a musical effect, but there's also a theory that by having a handicap, a fly may, a male fly may impress a female that, hey, you know, I've got these uneven wings um, and yet I'm still in great shape and I'm able to court you and try and attract you. So maybe you might want to have some of my genes. Hmm. You write about pain, possibly motion, even personalities among flies. How do scientists determine these things? Well, in terms of pain, uh, you know, there's there's the inference that pain is very useful to animals who can move away from it. This is the the main reason why it's it's generally agreed that that plants don't feel pain. I mean, we we should respect and protect plants too because they're important parts of the ecosystem and they're lovely. But uh, the scientific consensus is they don't feel pain. What what would be the value of developing organs to feel pain if you can't move away from bad stimuli? Plants are planted in in one place, uh, but um, you know, another way of looking at, uh, at insect, the possibility of insect pain is to study their biochemistry. And it's known that insects uh, have a dopamine system. Uh, they, they're responsive to morphine. Morphine uh, will relieve pain and will cause them to be less pain sensitive in a dose-dependent manner as it does with us. So the more morphine, the more effect, and the less morphine, the less effect. Uh, there was a study done in 2019 where they they removed a leg from an insect, we might say amputated, and uh, it caused the individuals to have chronic pain, mm. pain-like responses where they were three still hypersensitive to stimuli that would not normally be painful at all uh, three and more weeks after the initial injury was caused. That's called allodynia in humans, and um, it seems to be a similar phenomenon. Just another point, Lois, and that is that some of these phenomena are conserved through through eons of evolution. The fact that flies have dopamine responsiveness and octopamine responsiveness, for instance, uh, as do we, says a lot about the uh, the retention of useful adaptations through the evolutionary history. Wow. Please tell us about the Rolls Royce of flies. 
Well, it's just one uh, one group of flies, and uh, I imagine fly biologists would have their own their own uh, candidate. But for me, the the robber flies are are the Rolls Royces of flies. They're a great variety of them, you know, probably many thousands of species. But uh, some of them are very big. The biggest uh, is among the biggest of all flies. Um, I guess uh, two and a half inches long, which is a, not a big animal, but boy, to have a two and a half inch long fly in your hand is impressive. Uh, they're, they're not rare, but they're, most people probably haven't seen them. They have very long pointy abdomens and they're superb flyers and they perch just like flycatcher birds do. They perch on a perch waiting uh, with their big eyes looking for the right target to fly by. Uh, it could be a dragonfly, another fly. It could be a, a wasp or a bee. The biggest have even known on rare occasions to take down hummingbirds, small hummingbirds. And they, they fly out, grab them in their legs and stab them with their sharp mouth parts and inject uh, a poison that, that usually immobilizes the prey within seconds. Mm. So they're a pretty impressive kind of fly. Yeah. And doesn't arouse my sympathy, but certainly curiosity. Yes, and you'll be relieved to know they don't attack humans. I'm relieved, although I'm sorry for the hummingbirds. Yes, me too. However, when it comes to attacking humans, I found it very difficult to read about the mosquitoes, black flies, and midges. Yeah, really. Why should they exist? Yeah, well, nature's uh, a complex thing and uh, different species evolve according to opportunities. And, you know, blood, for instance, is a very rich protein source and there's a lot of it around on the earth. Uh, I estimated that there's 4,600 square miles of human skin available to mosquitoes. That's a pretty big habitat worldwide. And so perhaps not surprisingly, um, and if you add goats and sheep and cows, which, and, which we breed in huge numbers, uh, we've expanded their, their natural habitat. So mosquitoes are an example of a group of flies that are probably doing very well thanks to the human presence. And uh, yeah, they, they're opportunists. Flies are, are entrepreneurs. Uh, they're extremely adaptive and mosquitoes are an incredibly successful group of, of flies. Yeah, but okay, can we distinguish their worth from the other pollinators? Well, I would say one area that, fly, that mosquitoes are extremely valuable is, is elements of food chains. I, I can assure you that not every animal would want mosquitoes to disappear. A lot of animals feed on them. If you see swallows flying around in the air, I used to study bats. The, they eat a lot of mosquitoes. So they're a very, very important food source. And, and of course, if that mosquito happens to have successfully taken blood from another animal, then uh, the, uh, the lizard or the bat who catches that very full mosquito is going to get a, an extra uh, protein meal. <laughs> so I hadn't thought about that before researching the book, but it occurred to me, yeah, that's right. That's some of that stuff gets passed on. It, it all gets passed on in ecosystems ultimately. So... Um, you know, ecosystems work by complexity and uh, organisms are opportunistic. If there's a niche available, uh, they tend to fill it. And as I say, blood, uh, including our blood, is a very, very rich potential food source. Oh, let me tell you, I have provided many a rich meal for mosquitoes throughout my lifetime. Let's talk about filth and decay. Would you first tell us about the button with a cartoon you received from a friend. 
Yes, the button has a, a very crude little cartoon drawing of a fly. And if if I uh, pardon the, the language, but it says uh, we'll work for <laughs> and uh, it speaks to you know, there's obviously a pun there, but it does speak to the attraction of some fly species to to uh, waste products from other animals. You know, we were just talking about blood. Well, um, poop is a very, very also a very valuable source of food and also a place to lay your eggs and grow your young for many species and flies have certainly taken advantage of that. Okay, newfound appreciation. Um, your writing is witty and clever, is evident early on. And then we reach the sentence, fly sex comes in 50 shades of brown. What do we know about flies as lovers? Yeah, they really seem to like sex. Um, <laughs> there's foreplay, there's gift giving, there's cannibalism, there are serenades. I mentioned songs. Uh, there's complex genitalia. Uh, there's even giant sperm. Some species of fruit flies, the males produce giant, giant sperm. This is thought to be a product of sperm competition, where if you have a big tangle of spaghetti-like sperm that's seven times as long as your body, uh, you're going to make it very hard for any other male's sperm to penetrate and, and, and fertilize the female's eggs. Uh, uh, that's perhaps uh, more like reproduction than sex. But uh, yeah, flies, um, a lot of male flies do really cool dances and, and displays for females. Some of them do semaphore displays with their, with their beautiful patterned wings. And the dance fly males uh, have to be very careful when they approach a female. She's predatory and she'll be quite happy to have him for dinner. Thank you very much. <laughs> and uh, the dance fly males have evolved to try and deal with this by catching a, a, another food source and giving it to the female. So she's uh, both well-nourished and happy and preoccupied while he hopefully, if he ha has his way with her, uh, some males have taken to wrapping that present in a silk wrapper, um, presumably so it preoccupies the female for even longer, so he has more chance of getting away without being that female's next meal. Hmm. Some of your research landed you close to Atlanta. What did you learn from visiting a lab at the University of Georgia? Oh, yeah. Kelly Dyer at the University of Georgia was fantastic. We, we spent several times in her lab. Uh, and she she knocked out some fruit flies. She's a geneticist. When I say knocked out, she put them in ether and, and they became temporarily unconscious. And that's when I got to see them under this uh, dissecting microscope and just to see the incredible complexity, the beauty, the symmetry. They were like little jewels. And she toured me around the lab to see some of the equipment she used, um, uh, tools for isolating genetic material, um, a centrifuge, which was actually a salad spinner. Uh, scientists are always trying to save money. And uh, a salad spinner works just fine for her needs to separate liquids from solids from these samples. Um, yeah, it, it, the, one of the funnest part of parts of researching a book for me anyway is to go is to go and meet experts and to see how they study flies. Finally, you point out that fruit fly research has earned, seven Nobel Prizes. What are some of the serious subjects and diseases studied in fruit fly research? Yeah, um, the seventh of those seven was just the, the one awarded last year to the two women who developed the gene editing technology, uh, CRISPR. 
And, uh, you know, almost all of this work with fruit flies, and there's been over 100,000 papers, academic, scholarly, journal papers published on those so far, and that number is growing rapidly. And uh, for the vast majority of that is, is, is fruit fly research and genetic research uh, using fruit flies. And some of the applications are the area of trying to address agricultural, quote unquote, pests. I, I like to put it in quotes because that's a very anthropocentric term. Uh, other animals benefit and nature often benefits from these creatures being out there, but we, we have our own interests. Uh, also disease vectors, a lot of research uh, is, is done on, on the, the fact that uh, mosquitoes in particular, uh, but also some other biting flies can, can be vectors of diseases. So these are, the, these are the dark side of our relations with flies. But I do want to remind listeners that uh, fl flies are extremely useful as pollinators, waste disposers, members of food chains and uh, while they would flourish without us we would uh, the, the world would collapse into chaos without them biologist jonathan balcom his new book is superfly the unexpected lives of the world's most successful insects more information is available on our website wabe.org/citylights this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Along with so many others in the music industry, venue bookers and talent buyers have been hard hit by the pandemic. Damon Hare is the main talent buyer for the indie music venue, The Earl, and his company, Triple D's Production, also books shows at Terminal West, Variety Playhouse, and Aisle 5. Damon joined our new senior producer, Kim Drobes, via Zoom, about how he's getting live music back to The Earl. Here's Damon talking about his teenage start as a venue booker in Valdosta, Georgia. I was able to stumble upon some college kids that were from down there that started a DIY spot um, in like a flower shop that would have touring bands, that, bands that would go on to be rather huge later, which is kind of the story all the time. It's weird how the touring circuit, the DIY touring circuit always produces large acts, but it just kind of made me kind of addicted to it at a very early age. Well, how did you end up in Atlanta? I was booking tons of bands from up here down there. So I befriended a bunch of Atlanta people. And then when I was 21, I decided to transfer to Georgia State and move up here. And I've been here ever since. Very cool. Well, let's talk about COVID and yeah. what happened to people in your industry. Can you paint a picture for what it was like back in, say, March of last year when we all started to realize that the impact of COVID might not be going away? It was strange. I just, I remember, so I have a very funny story. I'm not trying to get too personal on my end, but I had a baby the week everything closed. Oh my goodness. So I was prepared for my life to change. <laughs> like on you know overnight but i didn't expect the entire world to completely change so drastically uh i do remember the week before and we all knew that the the you know the cases were forming we you know we saw like oh there's a couple cases in georgia that people know of now and and then when the former president was on he did that press conference uh where he said closing the borders no more flights no more anything that one was that was super shocking and that's kind of where 
we really didn't know how to roll with like all the because we had hundreds of shows booked and so did every venue in the country it was just super bizarre to like think about having to shut them all down and you're only thinking everyone was only hoping for a couple weeks and as each week went by you keep hearing like some expert saying no you're you got your hopes up if you think it's going to be a couple months it's going to be next year and no one wanted to believe that it's it's such a fast-paced industry and so yeah it was very shocking and it's uh it's almost like like i said you're if you're booking and promoting your life's kind of immersed in it really hard like just like a lot of jobs of course it's no different really there was a lot of mourning involved besides Mm -hmm. watching so many people having to be sick and to see how sad it all really got was the initial reaction to start rescheduling immediately or just canceling till further notice? It was best to cancel. Some bands want to be hopeful. The band from Europe or Japan or Australia, that was definitely, you know, best to cancel and, you know, pray that they can come back in the next couple of years. And it's unfortunate because there's so many great foreign acts nowadays that come through, which is such a blessing and privilege we all have. But yeah, so a lot of things canceled. You know, there was hopeful rescheduling for fall of 2020. But then the emails started getting a lot slower. I got to a point where I was like, well, at least I have my son I can hang out with. He could take my time and kind of my mind off of it here and there. I was very lucky to have that aspect. Well, I think it is absolutely a lovely aspect that you were able to bring a child into this world during that (laughs) time. And then you had that focus when things were really just bleak. Mm-hmm. for everyone. But as far as making a living back in the time that everything was just being canceled, how did that work for you and your coworkers? We all had to really go on unemployment. There was just no other way to do it. Uh, the music industry definitely needed it because we're like literally one of the last industries still coming back. Yeah, that's essentially how a lot of us had to get by. You know, the money just cut off overnight for the Earl. Mm. We had to close. I mean, we didn't reopen till the end of July in the front bar. And that had to be through the, you know, we have a garage window at the, at the front entrance and that it was literally just a to go only situation. And we set up an alfresco area dining, which I think it might stay. Don't quote me on that forever, but part of our parking lot now is a, is going to be tables. And I think, I think a lot of restaurants actually, might end up doing that. It kind of ended up creating a new vibe to the city. And outside is kind of fun, as long as it's not 110 degrees or pouring down rain. <laughs> sure, absolutely. As far as getting venues across our country back to normal, I know back in April, the Small Business Administration finally started accepting applications for their program to help venues. I think it's called the Shuttered mm-hmm. Venues Operation Grant. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you were able to get involved in on behalf of your production company? I'm still trying to do that for myself. I know some venues desperately need it. And I hope the SBA starts giving that money out to them because it not happened yet. So we'll see. Maybe once they get the kinks figured out, because some places that are strictly a room for just music and they can only open when they have a musician playing and, you know, they're, they're struggling so hard. It's just a sad day. We don't I mean tons of venues closed, you know, uh, Caledonia in Athens. It's heartbreaking that it, it's gone totally that was like our that's almost like a mirror image venue to us but in a, a sister city you know, an hour down the road it's like could have easily been you 
Yeah, totally. But that's the thing. We're, we're a lucky spot. We were established very early on in East Atlanta. Now East Atlanta is so popular that the Earl is very much supported. That support was really evident in the virtual performances and mm. everything that you scrambled to try to do. Yeah, those were uh, those were fun to do. We, I really wish we could have done more, but you know, the video crews that did that, they did those pretty much for free. And so they, they did that on their spare time for us. And we are so thankful that could happen. And that's why they look so cool. And um, they're still on YouTube if you can find them. There's three of them. And we were able to do the Charlie Brown special, which... City Lights covers every year. That's right. With Jeffrey Bootser and T.T. Mahoney. Like that was being discussed up until like the week. Of. And a lot of people were very thrilled that we were able to pull that one off at the last minute. Oh, wow. So let's talk about what a new normal may look like. It seems like shows are, are starting to be scheduled. When is your earliest and what can people imagine that it will be like? Is there limited capacity? Are there mass? What's going to happen? So our first one, we're, we're not going to be inside for the very, very first one. We're doing our 22nd anniversary because we didn't get to celebrate our 21st. And I know we're in a notoriously, you know, 21 and up bar. So it's kind of ironic <laughs> we didn't get to have our 21st birthday. So we're 22nd anniversary will be in our parking lot on July 11th. Our owners, band, tag team, and then country westerns from Nashville, Tennessee, who, um, include Joseph Plunkett, who is a Atlanta native. They're an incredible rock and roll band. And then Gentleman Jesse will be headlining. It'll be during the daytime. It's free to the public. We will ask for some donations, maybe. I mean, we are taking care of the bands and everything. But that's the very first one outside. We'll shift to indoors on July 28th. Uh, Surfer Blood is playing July 30th. But those will be, we're, going, we're not doing limited capacity by that point. That's why we waited until the end of July. So we're not jumping in like having shows every night. And then in August, we're just doing Fridays and Saturdays. We are going to have signs up, still requesting people to wear masks. We're kind of hoping that most people are vaccinated in the city. We're just, we're smaller potatoes, you know, compared to like, like, like Live Nation can set up, you know, a vaccination passport thing in front of their stadiums. I don't think we're going to go quite there. Maybe if a van requests it down the road, we might have to adhere to their requests. And I think their, their fan base will have to respect that. Right. It's just going to be a, a learning process for everybody, but we are going to hopefully be on the same team and we want everyone to feel safe and comfortable. And you can tell us and email us and, and how you feel about it. We can always talk the night of, and if you're at a show, you feel a little weird, let us know or something. It's just, we're all going to be in this together. It's a united front to get back to this. When you started booking again, what type of concerns were you hearing from the upcoming performers? Uh, nothing particular. I think they mostly want to see masks, you know, in the crowd. Safe. I think everyone was hoping that the vaccine rollout was going to be uh, well taken care of by this point. So I think that was it. I think the, I think everyone was really just hoping by the end of so summer it would look this good that's sort of why we wanted to wait on shows i know some venues started doing limited capacity in may and june we just kind of wanted to wait i do run into people if i you know see someone i haven't seen in a while at the grocery store or someone who knows what i do and they'll, they'll pick my brain they ask when shows are coming back they you know they go oh i got an invite to this one show i just don't know if i'm ready yet that is totally fine if you're not ready this is an unprecedented thing we've all gone through. And, and we have to accept everybody's position on it. We have to be uh, accepting. We have to be patient. And we get it. If you don't feel comfortable, don't don't come. Like, it's, we're not going to be offended. Like, we get it. I mean, it's literally up to the person who's ready to buy a ticket or not. 
ready to attend or not. I'm fully vaxxed. I'm still going to wear a mask just to kind of show face for everybody else if that they can feel comfortable wearing one. Good job. Moving forward, what do you hope right now for the future of your industry? I just want the concert industry and I just want everyone everywhere to not take it for granted anymore because it was such a thing that was just always there. You know, like, but now the last year and a half, everybody's like, God, I could use a show right about now. I could use a show. Just don't take it for granted, you know, like anything else in life. Live musicians, they are uh, a special breed of human and they, they work really hard at what they do and they deserve better pay. They deserve better quality of life. It's hard out there. Some people get lucky, some people don't. And I would just like for concerts just to be better appreciated coming back. That's about it. Venue booker Damon Hare with City Light senior producer Kim Tropes. Damon Hare is the main talent buyer for the Earl, and their 22nd anniversary party takes place July 11th. It's outdoors, and admission is free. For more information, visit our website, wabe.org slash citylight. As an art form, jazz has been notoriously slow to include women instrumentalists. But Tia Fuller is working to change the situation and see that women receive the long overdue recognition they deserve. She is a composer, jazz saxophonist, Berkeley School of Music professor and plays the music for the character of Dorothea Williams in the Pixar film Soul. Fuller is with us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. You are so warm and effusive. Dorothea is so reserved and imperious. You are not Dorothea, are you? You know, there are certain parts of my personality and character where I am Dorothea. I think it's more so toward like the balancing of self, uh, not towards other people. I really, I grew up in a very warm, supportive, nurturing environment. And so generally that's where I like to function. But uh, when it comes down to like the seriousness of, of my career or getting jobs done and, and my professional nature, there's a certain element in there that, that can, it can go there if need be, but usually not. <laughs> Well, Dorothy is the consummate artist and the one Joe Gardner always dreamed of playing with. Pixar characters always seem so lifelike. Would you take us behind the scenes of how you worked with Pixar to bring Dorothea's character to life? Ironically enough, the character was already predetermined. Before I got there, which was interesting, the thing that they did the molding of is really revamping and shaping her physical character to to mirror more of mine. And then also all of the elements, musical elements. So like my fingerings are exactly the fingerings 
well, her fingerings that, she, that you see Dorothea um, playing are exactly the same fingerings that I'm playing. So it's true to each and every artist. And then also like my entire setup on my saxophone, they have Dorothea playing alto. Um, they they changed everything on my saxophone, including the en engraving and the um, the ligature placement, which holds the the reed on the mouthpiece. Like all of that is mirrored to my saxophone, which was really cool. And you know, ironically enough, I was watching the movie with one of my best friends who comes to my my concerts all the time and is an avid supporter. And she was like, Tia, look at how she's holding the saxophone. That's how you sit on a stool. Or the way that you like adjust the saxophone mouthpiece. That's what you do. That looks like you. So it was, it, it's really cool how they mirrored the microcosms of our personalities and our movements to really manifest through, through the characters. And it's not just mine, but it's also Linda O's character, who is the young lady on bass and um, John Baptiste. You know, there were certain mannerisms that really came out through the character that are ours. Well, that's why it's so lifelike and all the more authentic. I mean, in effect, Dorothea is you, your musicianship and your craft. The main character, Joe Gardner, is a middle school band teacher working for his big break as a jazz musician. And that's where your character, Dorothea Williams, comes in. She offers Joe the opportunity to join her quartet at the best jazz club in New York. Tia, how does that compare with your own big break? Mm. You know, now this was the very ironic thing about the character and the development was that I spent significant time in New York, um, New Jersey area. I moved out there in 2001 and um, stayed there for 14 years to per specifically pursue my career. And um, so the New York scene, I know extremely well just because I was in there really trying to trying to etch into, you know, my career and the experience of being a jazz musician, a, a black woman who is a saxophonist. And then also, also all of the social and cultural elements that are a part of it and being a, being a band leader. And um, it was ironic because those parts were not discussed um, as far as me playing her character and her being the sound behind the music in her, that, in her character. But my life to me in a macro perspective really correlates with, you know, her journey as a woman playing this music and being a, a leading woman um, who's playing at premier jazz clubs. It, it, it was just really extraordinary to see how the stories at that point intersected. Did you have one particular big break or was your success more on a trajectory? Oh, wow. It truly has been a series of breaks, but I would say probably the most notable um, to the general public is, of course, the gig with Beyonce, and which is ironic because that's a different genre. <laughs> Prior to that, though, I was playing with the Duke Ellington Orchestra. I thought that was a big deal. I, I would say so. That's a big damn deal. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> and then also, you know, playing with the great late uh, Ralph Peterson starting in 2004 
And then really starting my own group, like when I first moved out to New York in 2001. To me, my big break was the culmination of the smaller breaks and the lessons that it really bestowed upon me, which has led me to, you know, today and different opportunities such as Pixar. You mentioned Beyonce. You also played with Aretha Franklin. Were those the most memorable gigs? Yes, those are some of the most memorable. The thing about it is playing with Aretha Franklin, I was a part of um, uh, the Black Girls Rock. It was a group. It wasn't my quartet. So um, I remember right before the performance, we met and um, we had prayer all together, but it wasn't like I got a chance to really sit in fellowship with her. But either way, like playing with Aretha Franklin, performing with Natalie Cole, of course, meeting, just meeting Wayne Shorter and Herbie Hancock. And I was actually supposed to perform with him last year before the pandemic shut down. Performing with Terry Lynn Carrington and, and actually uh, being a good friend of hers now. And she produced my last nominated um, Grammy nominated album. I know she's been on, on this show, which is great. But yeah, to me, those are those are the big breaks. And for me, a big break is having a goal point or a dream or just something that you want to attain and you're able to not only tap into it, but you're able to go exceedingly above and beyond. Jazz saxophonist and Spellman alumna Tia Fuller. She plays the saxophone you hear for the character of Dorothea Williams in Pixar's animated film Soul. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., director Dominic Cook will tell us about his new film, The Courier, a Cold War thriller starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Rachel Brosnahan. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes, our producer is Summer Evans, and Shelley Canavy is our engineer. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wab.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.